This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The depredations which had been committed on the commerce of the U.S. during a preceding war by persons under the authority of Spain are sufficiently known to all. These made it a duty to require from that government indemnifications for our injured citizens. A convention was accordingly entered into between the minister of the U.S. at Madrid and the minister of that government for foreign affairs. Before this convention was returned to Spain with our ratification, the transfer of Louisiana by France to the U.S. took place, an event as unexpected as disagreeable to Spain. From that moment, she seemed to change her conduct and dispositions toward us. To obtain justice as well as to restore friendship, I thought a special mission advisable and accordingly appointed James Monroe. Minister Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary, to repair to Madrid and in conjunction with our minister resident there, to endeavor to procure a ratification of the former convention and to come to an understanding with Spain as to the boundaries of Louisiana. Present crises in Europe is favorable for pressing such a settlement, and not a moment should be lost in availing ourselves of it. Should it pass unimproved, our situation would become much more difficult. Formal war is not necessary. It is not probable it will follow. But the protection of our citizens, the spirit and honor of our country, require that force should be interposed to a certain degree. It will probably contribute to advance the object of peace. Thomas Jefferson, December 6th, 1805. As 1805 gave way to 1806, relations between the United States and Spain were at their lowest ebb since the two had established diplomatic relations over 20 years prior. Ever the optimist, though, the President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, reported in a message to Congress in early December 1805 that he felt an agreement could be reached between the two nations, though, as noted in the opening quote, Jefferson did not completely close the door on the use of force in order to secure that peace. We've talked a bit about the growing tensions with Spain in recent episodes, but in this episode, I'd like to dive into those tensions a bit further before exploring other points of tension both out in the nation and within the halls of Congress. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to James Early for providing the intro quote for this episode. James has been a friend of the podcast since the beginning and has consistently helped to get the word out there about presidencies. After hanging around with so many podcasters for a while, James decided to dip his toe into the waters as well and has collaborated with Scott Rank of the History Unplugged podcast on a series of podcasts devoted to exploring key battles in various conflicts in history. Currently, they're in the midst of a series on the Pacific theater of World War II, but they'll soon begin a new series called Key Battles of American History. As we've already seen in this podcast, war has been a part of the history of the United States from the nation's founding, and these conflicts have had an impact on bringing the nation together, increasing the nation's size, combating disunion, and in the 20th century, saw the U.S. become a global superpower. James and Scott in the new series will discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. I'll post a link to the presidency social media as well as in the source notes page for this episode if you'd like to check it out. Or you can search for 
Key Battles of American History, anywhere fine podcasts can be found. As noted in previous episodes, a particular point of tension between the U.S. and Spain at the time was the border between Spanish territories and the Louisiana Purchase. The Americans naturally had a more expansive view of where the border lay, in particular the one to the east of the Louisiana Purchase, with the U.S. government claiming that West Florida had been part of the agreed territorial acquisition with France. As neither Spain nor France was willing to concede the point, and Spain had retained control of West Florida even when the Louisiana colony was briefly returned to France, the American position was rather weak. Still, as we've seen from James Monroe's negotiations in Europe, this didn't mean that the government wouldn't continue to officially push the point while American citizens back home sought a resolution through other means. West Florida was not just important in terms of securing the east bank of the Mississippi River, but it also contained a key port on Mobile Bay. White settlers in the eastern portion of the Mississippi Territory would send their goods down the Mobile River to the port that had been established on the bay that the river fed into. As had been the case with New Orleans, though, Spanish officials at Mobile taxed American goods going through their port and would, at times, cut off the right of deposit altogether. As had been the case with the Mississippi River, white settlers in the eastern portion of the territory felt that something had to be done to secure their use of that port. However, it would be on the west side of the territory that the first action towards the goal of claiming West Florida was taken. A group of three brothers, Nathan, Reuben, and Samuel Kemper, would lead what has come to be dubbed the West Florida Rebellion of 1804, or the Kemper Rebellion. However, we must note that, as described by historian Andrew McMichael in his book, Atlantic Loyalties, Americans in Spanish West Florida, 1785-1810, to there is reason to question whether this can, in fact, be called a rebellion, or if it was just another in a series of raids on the borderlands that occurred periodically since 1778, and in which the Kempers themselves had even participated. From McMichael, quote, Intent on stealing slaves and cattle, the Kemper gang seemed less like a revolutionary vanguard and more like the leaders of a group of land pirates intent on plundering the Baton Rouge district. Still, in August 1804, they, along with 30 men, crossed the border and proceeded with, quote, a blue and white striped flag and, quote, a proclamation of independence to the capital of West Florida, a settlement named Baton Rouge. Now, for those who don't know, Baton Rouge is where I was born and I grew up around the area, so it does fill my heart with some joy at being able to talk about it on here. If you go to the Baton Rouge area, you may at some point hear something about the Republic of West Florida. While the Kempers and their associates did proclaim a Republic of West Florida that August, this wasn't the one that is typically referred to, but we'll get to that one as well before too long. For the Kempers and their force, they found few local supporters for their efforts. And as they started hearing reports of Spanish troops and militia forces coming from East Florida, the Kempers decided they would be better to live to fight another day, and they all made their way as fast as possible back across the border into the Mississippi Territory. Thus endeth the First Republic of West Florida. Naturally, this attempt at overthrowing Spanish control in West Florida had an impact in what soon after became the Orleans Territory. Many of the leading citizens of New Orleans were not at all pleased with American rule and it didn't take six months after the handover before a group of them sent a petition to Congress outlining their complaints about the new administration in charge of the region. They aptly chose a relocated former congressman who we've discussed previously, Edward Livingston, to draft their position. In addition to the Creole elites, Governor William Claiborne and General James Wilkinson both warned their superiors in Washington about the threat posed by people of color 
both free and enslaved, in New Orleans. Claiborne claimed to have thwarted two slave revolts in the fall of 1804, while a plot by free people of color was reported to the territorial government in January 1806. The minds of white American slave owners continued to be haunted by fears of an American version of the revolution, which had started a decade and a half prior in Saint-Domingue. The new nation of Haiti stood off the southern coast in the Caribbean, a nation ruled by emancipated black men. Since the Declaration of Independence on New Year's Day 1804, its leader, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, had exacerbated the fears of white American leaders. In the spring of that year, he launched a campaign to summarily execute, quote, most of the white French people remaining, a step that cemented his militant reputation abroad. Dessalines dismissed the threat of the French returning to reassert control, proclaiming, quote, let her, i.e. France, come. This power crazy enough to dare attack me. Let them come, these homicidal troops. I am waiting for them, standing firm with a steady eye. It should be stated, though, that despite these moves and the Jefferson administration's official stance of distancing itself and isolating the new Haitian regime, as described by Philippe Girard, quote, it was U.S. merchants who decided whether to isolate Haiti, and in their eyes, Haiti's racial and political profile was far less important than market opportunities namely abundant, low-priced coffee and a steady demand for gunpowder. As accounts by U.S. merchants make very clear, trade with Haiti could not have taken place without the acquiescence of Dessalines, whose policies were thus far more relevant to the actuality of U.S.-Haitian trade relations than Jefferson's. Though it is beyond our scope to go into the ins and outs of this portion of Haitian history, we should note that, rather than adopting a Republican form of government, Dessalines was proclaimed as Emperor Jacques I and worked to establish the framework for the First Haitian Empire. This empire would be short-lived as Dessalines was assassinated on October 17, 1806. In a prelude of the violence to come, the First Haitian Emperor's body was, quote, mutilated and abandoned on Government Square. Haiti would soon find itself in the midst of a civil war between the forces of Alexandre Pétion in the south and the self-crowned King Henri Christophe in the north. We will return to Haiti at some point, but just know that all of this was happening just over a thousand miles away from the United States, and the links between the U.S. and Haiti would continue on even when the American government did its best to ignore this new nation. To return to the colony of West Florida, though, as can be imagined, the Kemper invasion had left many Spanish officials and citizens upset. At some point in the late summer, early fall of 1805, a group of Spanish citizens went on a raid into the Mississippi Territory in search of the Kemper brothers. As described by historian David Stewart, quote, A dozen whites in blackface, plus seven actual blacks, crossed the border and kidnapped the three disruptive Kemper brothers, dragging them from their beds in the night. While the kidnappers were transporting their captives by canoe, American troops intervened, freed the Kempers, and imprisoned the kidnappers. Apparently, folks in the Mississippi Territory and other parts of the western U.S. were outraged, quote, over the insult to American sovereignty, but either didn't know of or didn't appreciate the similar insult to Spanish sovereignty by an extra-legal invasion force attempting to take West Florida. Meanwhile, in September 1805, an American merchant ship was seized in the harbor of Mobile by the Spanish, who claimed that the ship, quote, had failed to pay required duties. This further inflamed tensions between the Spanish in West Florida and American settlers along the border who continued to send goods through Mobile. As the year gave way to 1806, Orleans territorial governor William C.C. C. Claiborne reported back to the government in Washington, quote, a Spanish military buildup 
with improvements being made to the fort at Baton Rouge and with 400 new Spanish soldiers arriving in West Florida from Havana, Cuba. Likewise, the number of soldiers on the border with Spanish Tejas swelled from 141 in late 1805 to around 800 in 1806. Indeed, the Tejas-Orleans territory border was a potential powder keg, as small units of soldiers from both sides, quote, were playing cat and mouse on the border, and the governor of Tejas ordered Spanish troops, quote, to attack all American soldiers who crossed the Arroyo Hondo. The commanders in the field, though, ignored the governor's order as they, quote, feared the American forces were too strong for them. Little did Claiborne know, though, that the greatest threat to his continuance in office was from within the United States rather than the Spanish forces on the borders. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Friends, it's time to get caught back up with everyone's favorite former vice president, Aaron Burr. When last we left him in episode 3.29, Burr was making his way back north on the Natchez Trace. Unbeknownst to Burr, his trip to the west was attracting attention in the east. The Gazette of the United States had printed a story titled Queries on its front page in its August 2nd, 1805 issue, in which it asked the questions, quote, Is it a fact that Colonel Burr has formed a plan to engage the adventurous and enterprising young men from the Atlantic states to come into Louisiana? Is it one of the inducements that an immediate convention will be called from the states bordering on the Ohio and Mississippi to form a separate government? Whatever Burr would learn of this story, he would learn later, as the middle of the summer of 1805 found him first in Nashville, Tennessee, where he spent a week with Andrew Jackson, before proceeding to Kentucky, where he met with the former Speaker of the State House of Representatives and General of the State Militia, John Adair. It was just after Burr left bound for St. Louis that the provocative story from the Gazette of the United States reached Louisville. The Kentucky Gazette responded to the rumor by asserting that, quote, if he, i.e. Burr, calculated on withdrawing the affections of the people of the western states from their government, he will find himself deceived. Speaking of deceptions, as Burr's next stop was St. Louis to visit the governor of the Louisiana Territory, let's take a moment to get caught back up with our old friend, General James Wilkinson. As noted in episode 3.29, Wilkinson's warm welcome in St. Louis in early July 1805 would be the high point in his career as territorial governor. From his first actions in office, as described by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, Wilkinson showed a consistent bias in favor of the Creoles. Although justified in terms of democratic justice, this was a dangerous policy. It not only made enemies among Anglo-American settlers, but turned the military administrators against him. Now, it should be noted that the Creole inhabitants and Native Americans represented the majority of the population of the territory, and thus, in appealing to them, Wilkinson was pursuing a democratic policy. To the Anglo-American settlers, though, he was deemed a tyrant and he quickly made enemies of some prominent landowners in the area, especially given his support of the Creole's challenges to land claims that had been purchased by the newcomers to the area. Linkletter did conclude, though, that, despite his unpopularity with that powerful minority of the population, quote, Wilkinson's stance helped reconcile a diffuse frontier population to U.S. government. 
His disagreement with military leaders would also prove to be important in future events. While Wilkinson was acting governor of the Louisiana Territory, he was also still senior officer of the U.S. Army and thus had duties in that capacity to carry out. Rather than bringing that force together as he did populations in the territory, though, Wilkinson would be a divisive figure in the military establishment at this point in his career due to a dispute with his second-in-command, Colonel Thomas Butler. As we discussed way back in episode 3.7, General Wilkinson, early on in the Jefferson presidency, had issued an order for all men under his command to cut off the long queue or pigtail that had been the fashion of 18th century soldiers. Federalists in the armed services were appalled at the order as they saw it as a matter of tradition and worked alongside Federalist politicians to challenge the new orders. Colonel Butler was one of those who had opposed Wilkinson's order, and as late as 1805, he was still in open opposition, maintaining his long hair in the traditional fashion. By July 1805, Butler's second court-martial had convened, and he, quote, was found guilty of disobedience of orders and mutinous conduct, and was sentenced to suspension from his command of the 2nd Regiment for one year without pay. Ultimately, fate would intervene to remove Butler as a source of opposition to Wilkinson, as the colonel fell ill and passed away from yellow fever in New Orleans on September 7th of that year. But filling his vacant position would open up a new can of worms, as the commanding General Wilkinson found that Secretary of War Henry Dearborn had his own ideas about who Wilkinson's second-in-command should be. Even with his days filled with the politics of territorial and military administration, Wilkinson still managed to find time to engage in other forms of intrigue. As described by David Stewart, quote, In his early days as governor, the stocky, floored Wilkinson acted as if he knew a great secret. When alone with a senior officer, he locked the doors and paced silently. The general insisted that public opinion favored energetic measures. Wilkinson said he had a grand scheme in contemplation that will not only make mine, but the fortunes of all concerned. Burr arrived in St. Louis on September 12th, a few days after Colonel Butler's passing, though that news had likely not arrived at that point. The former vice president remained in the Gateway City for a week, but it seems that the visit didn't go quite so well. A major on the scene who observed interactions between Burr and Wilkinson noted that Burr, quote, strictured the situation and laughed at the general's military notions. Burr biographer Milton Lomas described it as, quote, a recognizable picture of Aaron Burr, patrician by birth, being patronizing to James Wilkinson, self-made upstart, of Burr displaying that consciousness of superiority so often attributed to him by contemporaries and so irritating to some of them. James Wilkinson was not a man to suffer criticism lightly, certainly not a man to relish being laughed at. It should be noted that, in addition to his professional difficulties, the Wilkinson that Burr found upon his arrival in St. Louis was also a man suffering personal difficulties. His wife Nancy had developed tuberculosis and had suffered from ill health in the latter part of the summer. For Burr's part, David Stewart argues that, in his visit to New Orleans, Byrd received confirmation about Wilkinson's status as a paid agent of the Spanish government, which had caused him to doubt his fellow conspirator. Whether they were received before or after Burr's arrival, Wilkinson would likewise come to have doubts about his relationship with Burr from letters received from Secretary of War Henry Dearborn and Daniel Clark, a contact in New Orleans. Clark reported that, quote, many absurd and wild reports are circulated here about a plot involving Burr and Wilkinson, while Dearborn reported that, even as far as Washington, D.C., quote, there is a rumor that you, Burr, etc., are too intimate. 
Upon Burr's departure, both men had a choice to make. For Burr, he had to consider whether he could, in fact, rely on Wilkinson in his plans, while the general had to carefully weigh who would offer him the most as events played out. The Americans, the Spanish, or Aaron Burr. Before we follow Burr back on his journey to the east, let's take a moment to check in on the Orleans Territory and Governor William C.C. Claiborne. Since assuming his post, Claiborne had quickly worked to establish a solid government for the territory, and in fact, in the spring of 1805, had pushed it into the second state of territorial government, which allowed for an elected House of Representatives. However, Claiborne's tenure to that point had been one in which he had faced criticism from the inhabitants with Spanish and French backgrounds. As noted by Lingletter, in contrast to Wilkinson, Claiborne was not as sensitive to the positions of the Creole population in the Orleans Territory. Further, Claiborne allowed his frustrations to show in a speech that he delivered to the Territorial Council on July 3, 1805. As noted by Claiborne's biographer Joseph Hatfield, quote, Stung by the rising voices of protest, the governor alluded to party spirit and the particular traditions and culture of the people as forces which would make the administration of the territory both painful and perplexing for a number of years. Hatfield goes on to say about this uncharacteristic public defensive backlash that, quote, although Claiborne may have been well advised to display firmness at the beginning of his administration, this was hardly the time and place for such an intemperate outburst. It only gave encouragement to his critics, some of whom soon served in the territorial legislature. We'll have to see in future episodes how Claiborne meets the challenges of the various internal and external threats to the vulnerable and crucial port of New Orleans. But for now, let's return to the former vice president as he wraps up his western trip. In the fall of 1805, Burr made his way back towards the eastern seaboard. On the way, he visited with the governor of the Indiana Territory, William Henry Harrison, then went on through Kentucky and Ohio before, in late November, he arrived in Washington, D.C. At this point, as Burr was still under indictments in New Jersey and New York related to his duel with Hamilton in 1804, there were limits to where he could go. But the nation's capital not only provided a safe haven, but it would allow him to check in with foreign diplomats to see whether the overtures that he had made to them months prior had borne fruit. As in his previous approach to British Minister to the U.S. Anthony Mary, Burr first sent a proxy, this time former Senator Jonathan Dayton. Then a couple of days later, called on the diplomat directly. As Burr and Mary both knew, and as described by Lomas, quote, though the members of His Majesty's government were still listening attentively to pleas in Burr's behalf, they were not doing anything about them. Thus, Burr ramped up the pressure on Mary to send solid assurances to his government that Burr's plans could succeed with British support. Or with French support, of course, if he had to go that route. Mary quickly complied and wrote a report outlining his support for Burr's schemes. As historian Malcolm Lester describes, quote, Mary's dispatch of November 25th was something of an endorsement and a tentative recommendation of British support for Burr. The Jefferson administration appears to have been made aware at the time by an anonymous letter of Burr's contacts with Mary. Despite their efforts, and to the detriment of both Burr and Mary, the minister's dispatch did not arrive until after the death of Prime Minister William Pitt, and the new government was not inclined to agree to Mary's assessment of the situation. Burr and Dayton also approached Spanish minister to the U.S. Erujo, despite the fact that at least a portion of the possible plans of the conspiracy involved attacking Spanish colonies. 
At this point, however, the Spanish minister to the U.S. was not in Washington, D.C. Irujo, the long-standing representative of the Spanish government in the American capital, had finally pushed the Jefferson administration too far with his public protest of the U.S. acquisition of Louisiana to the point that Jefferson sent official notice to the Spanish government requesting Irujo's recall. In a face-saving measure, and as Spanish-American relations were at such a low ebb, Irujo arranged with his government for a quote-unquote leave from his duties, which involved him closing the Spanish embassy in Washington and shifting his residence to a townhouse in Philadelphia. Why Philadelphia, you ask? Well, Irujo was the son-in-law of the governor of Pennsylvania, Thomas McKean. Irujo's residence in the U.S. would continue for two and a half years after he ended his official duties. In December 1805, Irujo was still the highest-ranking Spanish official in the U.S. with a direct line to that government. And thus, Dayton in early December traveled to Philadelphia to meet with him to put forward a proposal. As evidenced by their interactions with Wilkinson, it was clear that the Spanish government was willing to give money for efforts to thwart American expansion in North America. Why not help fund Burr's scheme to break off the Western U.S. from the rest of the nation? Now, Dayton wielded a stick with this carrot. He falsely claimed that the British were already supporting Burr's efforts and, with that on the table, laid out that the plans included taking the Floridas and Mexico. If the Spanish would contribute to the effort, though, the implication was that those aims could change. Irujo was not fooled. If the British were funding Burr's plans, then there would have been no need to approach the Spanish government. Still, he was open to listening to how Burr might spur some discontent in the United States. In subsequent meetings, Dayton shifted tactics. He admitted to lying about the British support, but now he was ready to come clean with a portion of the plan he hadn't revealed previously. Burr's plans included, wait for it, an invasion of Washington, D.C. itself. As described by David Stewart, quote, Upon a signal, Burr's men would seize the president, the vice president, and the president pro tem of the Senate. Burr's forces would empty the local banks, then sail away on the best ships in Washington's Navy Yard, burning the others so they could not follow. Dear friends, it seriously surprises me that there is no biography available of Jonathan Dayton because he is the ultimate snake oil salesman of his time. Somehow, he was able to convince Irujo and of all of the foreign powers that Burr reached out to in his plans to attack Spanish and American holdings, it was a Spanish diplomat who was the only one who provided funds to aid in the effort. Granted, it was only $3,000, but Irujo provided $3,000 more than the British ever would. I am, however, getting ahead of myself. Arguably, Burr's overture to Irujo was not the most brazen move he undertook at the latter part of 1805, for Burr met with none other than President Thomas Jefferson on November 30th, 1805. Though we have no way of knowing for certain what was said in their meeting, as noted by Lomas, quote, it is unlikely the busy executive talked about the weather, and he may have discussed what Mr. Burr was trying to do in the Western country. As evidenced by Mary's report back to his government that, quote, Mr. Burr still has the means of knowing the secrets of this government. This private conference with the President of the United States provided Burr with a cloak of authority that he was not afraid to use, as we shall see in subsequent episodes. 
We've already talked about the winter of 1805-1806 being a time that Muslim envoys and native leaders from the central portions of North America convened in Washington, D.C. at the same time as the president's daughter. And now, as you know, the scheming, disgraced former vice president was also in town. But there's another important foreign citizen that came to the nation's capital at the same time that we must discuss. It's been a while since Francisco de Miranda has appeared in our narrative, but he comes back into the story of the Jefferson administration at a crucial time. Miranda arrived back on American soil when his ship arrived in the port of New York on November 9, 1805. In addition to meeting with various notables, including the former U.S. Minister to Britain and Federalist candidate for vice president in 1804, Rufus King, Miranda was invited by the city to be a guest of honor at an anniversary celebration for the British evacuation of New York at the end of the Revolutionary War. From New York, Miranda went to Philadelphia before proceeding to Washington, D.C. in early December. As always, Miranda's aims were the same, to gain support for an expedition to liberate the Spanish colonies in South America starting in modern-day Venezuela. The problem with this, at least from Burr's perspective, was that Miranda was hitting up some of the same merchants and leaders for financial support that Burr was approaching for his scheme. Indeed, on December 7th, Miranda met not only with President Jefferson, but also with some of his cabinet. And a few days later, the South American had a follow-up consultation with Secretary of State James Madison. Now, we should note a few points here. First, by common practice, as described by Dumas Malone, quote, Jefferson extended his hospitality to all visitors of any consequence, so the administration was able to justify its reception of Miranda along those lines. However, the friendliness exhibited by the president and his chief officers had an impression, quote, on his, i.e., Miranda's prospective supporters in New York. The minds of the latter, it may be added, were filled with hopes not only of the liberation of colonial peoples, but of financial gains commiserate with the risk of the undertaking. We should, however, note that it is fairly certain that the administration communicated that they could not officially sanction Miranda's plans. With that, the question remains as to what kind of unofficial assurances Jefferson or the cabinet members provided. Given how many prominent Americans had been approached by Miranda over the years, there is little doubt that the administration was aware of his goals, but they did nothing to dissuade others from supporting Miranda or to stop him from organizing his expedition on American soil. Let's put our discussion of Miranda on the back burner for the moment and turn our attention to the first full session of the 9th U.S. Congress, which had convened on December 2, 1805. Up until this session, Jefferson had enjoyed a rather convivial relationship with the legislative branch in his presidency, though he had always tried to maintain a clear delineation between the powers of the executive and the legislative branches of government. Jefferson had found Congress quite willing to agree to his administration's policies. A growing problem, however, was the opposition of John Randolph of Roanoke, House Representative from the state of Virginia. Despite the fact that Jefferson and Randolph were distant cousins, indeed, both men could also claim kinship with many prominent figures from Virginia. As last discussed in episode 3.25, Randolph could not get behind some of the administration's recent actions notably with the Yazoo land claims, and came out publicly with strong words attacking some of Jefferson's key allies, in particular, Secretary of State Madison. This did not mean, of course, that Randolph was against the president personally. As Randolph wrote Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin on October 25th, quote, 
I regret exceedingly Mr. Jefferson's resolution to retire and almost as much the premature enunciation of that determination. If I were sure that Monroe would succeed him, my regret would be very much diminished. Randolph increasingly saw Madison as betraying the principles of the Democratic Republican Party and Monroe as the true heir of Jefferson's legacy. As Madison biographer Ralph Ketchum describes, however, Jefferson and Madison were in lockstep in their ideology as it had been devised and adapted over the years of their close collaboration. Quote, As Jefferson said in his inaugural address, Republican government was the strongest in the world because of its support by the people. He and Madison intended to use this strength for the only purpose that would not diminish it, to achieve Republican ends. Attacks against Madison were, in essence, attacks against Jefferson, and that just would not do for holding the political faction united under Jefferson together. As politicians in Washington saw that a rift between the administration and a key Democratic-Republican congressional leader would cause problems, they started thinking of ways to avoid a head-to-head battle. Thus, Representative Christopher Clark, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, approached Jefferson about the idea of sending Randolph as a special envoy to Great Britain to work to resolve the growing issues between those two nations. The president, however, rejected this proposal, instead asserting his confidence in his ally and friend James Monroe in handling the situation. Though this method of pushing political adversaries off to foreign posts would be used over time to quell opposition, given the importance of sorting out matters with Britain and the fact that such an appointment would mean greater interaction between Madison and Randolph, it's easy to see why Jefferson thought that it wasn't a great idea. But it still remained to determine what to do about Randolph. As Congress came back together, the rumor started to spread that Jefferson would prefer Representative Randolph was not reappointed to his position as chair of the House Ways and Means Committee. Randolph, however, was a close ally of Speaker of the House Nathaniel Macon, Democratic-Republican from North Carolina. Thus, if the administration and its allies in the House really wanted to turn Randolph out of his chairmanship, they couldn't just stop at Randolph. Macon had to go too. When the House came back together in early December, as was customary, the election for Speaker was one of the first items on the agenda. In this election, Speaker Macon, who had served in that role for the past two Congresses, was challenged by the nomination of Representative Joseph Varnum, Democratic-Republican from Massachusetts. As Varnum had been put up by allies of the administration and no word had come from the President's House dispelling the rumor about Jefferson's desire to see Randolph replaced, it was clear to Macon, Randolph, and their faction that the President had given his blessing. This time, though, Jefferson would not have his way. After three ballots, Macon was finally re-elected as Speaker of the House, and he then went on to name Randolph as Chair of the House Ways and Means Committee again. Not only was this effort to remove Randolph from power a failure, it also served to further the rift between the two Virginian cousins at a time where the President might need congressional support in the case of either peace or war with Britain or Spain. While addressing, quote, the infringement of neutral rights by the maritime powers, an allusion to Great Britain, in his annual address, then, three days later, sending a special message to Congress on the failure of Monroe's special mission to Madrid and the continued perilous state of affairs on the U.S.-Spanish borders, in neither of these messages did Jefferson provide clear guidance on what to do. As described by Dumas Malone, the president, quote, erred on the side of vagueness, 
and, quote, committed everything to the wisdom of Congress. Then, as in future eras, that turned out to be a problematic approach for the president to take. As Malone notes, as most of the discussions took place behind the scenes with few committee notes to paper about the process, we don't have all of the details. But it seems that, shortly after Congress convened and Jefferson sent over his messages, word was sent to John Randolph, quote, that the president desired an appropriation of $2 million for negotiations for the Floridas. Randolph later asserted that he rejected the idea, both because he did not agree with negotiating for the Floridas and as he objected to Jefferson not just saying in his special message what he wanted Congress to do. Both Jefferson and Randolph's friend, Secretary Gallatin, lobbied the representative from Virginia, who had been appointed to a special committee to respond to the president's message regarding Spain, but to no avail. Randolph had no intention of supporting paying one cent for the Floridas. The committee presented to the full House a report on January 3rd, 1806, which reflected, quote, Randolph's insistence that belligerency should be shunned until the national debt had been discharged. Randolph did, at the very least, put forward, quote, a resolution authorizing the immediate raising of such number of troops as the president might deem sufficient to protect the southern frontiers from Spanish inroad and insult. No matter. If Randolph could no longer be counted on to advance the administration's agenda in Congress, there were other congressmen who they could call on for support. And on January 6th, one of these individuals introduced a resolution that called for the $2 million appropriation requested by Jefferson. The administration's new point person in the House would be Barnabas Bidwell, an incoming Democratic-Republican representative from Massachusetts. Bidwell was a graduate of Yale College and had studied law at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. From his political base in western Massachusetts, Bidwell had been elected to the state Senate in 1801 and served until he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, I've checked this in a couple of sources, and it seems like Bidwell may have simultaneously served in the Massachusetts State House of Representatives and the U.S. House from 1805 until 1807. I'm still trying to confirm that that was the case. Regardless, Bidwell was 41 when he assumed his seat in Congress and came highly recommended to Jefferson by his trusted advisor and former Attorney General Levi Lincoln. As Jefferson had worked with Lincoln and Postmaster General Gideon Granger to cultivate Democratic-Republican strength in New England, the stronghold of federalism at the time, it could have been that Jefferson saw Bidwell as a key ally to have in his corner in terms of political geography. Representative Varnum, the chair of a committee to which Randolph's bill had been referred, decided to eliminate the either-or nature of the two resolutions. He put forward, quote, a bill authorizing the president to call into service militia up to 100000 and appropriating $2 million for that purpose. This bill was adopted by the House on January 27th and the Senate on April 14th. Despite this effort at conciliation, Bidwell's bill for another $2 million, quote, for undefined diplomatic purposes, was still out there, and this bill was adopted even earlier than Varnum's, on January 16th. The bill, known as the $2 million bill, went quickly through the Senate as well, passed in that house on February 7th, and Jefferson signed the bill into law on February 13th. The passage of the $2 million bill indicated a shift in the political landscape of Washington as Randolph had successfully been bypassed and the president's agenda passed without the congressman from Virginia's approval. 
The fact that Jefferson's grandson, born at the president's house on January 17th, was named James Madison Randolph, could also have been salt in the wound. It was clear that the immediate post-Jefferson future that the president envisioned went through Madison, not Randolph's proposed successor, James Monroe. But wait, you say, what about the situation with the British? As we've already discussed in previous episodes, a growing point of contention in Anglo-American relations was impressment, or the forced servitude of American sailors on British ships. For anyone who thinks that it is hypocritical of a nation that has a sizable portion of its economy reliant on enslaved labor to be so up in arms at the idea of impressment, you're definitely not alone. Students of history have noted this dichotomy for years, and the only explanation I have is that humans and the societies that they craft and participate in are not always rational. But I digress. Though Jefferson had already touched on the issues with the British in his annual message, he decided that he needed to send a more robust message directly identifying the British and speaking more particularly to the issues at hand. While Jefferson's message of January 17, 1806 was short, it was accompanied by a host of supplementary materials to add gravity to the situation. Though again, Jefferson refrained from giving clear direction on what he wanted from Congress, it was at the very least clear that he wanted some action to be taken by that body. Unfortunately, the path to that action went through Representative John Randolph of Roanoke. The consideration of Jefferson's information on quote-unquote infringements on neutral commerce was referred to the House Ways and Means Committee, despite efforts of Bidwell and other Northern Democratic Republicans to prevent such a move. Despite this initial misstep, Within a couple of weeks, the administration's supporters in the House were able to get the matter out of ways and means and instead brought before the Committee of the Whole, which is the main body of the House. On that day, January 29th, Representative Andrew Gregg, Democratic-Republican from Pennsylvania, quote, submitted a resolution calling for the exclusion of all British imports until equitable and satisfactory arrangements should be made respecting impressment and the actions against American commerce. It quickly became clear that Randolph was in opposition to this proposal, and a leading Federalist leader doubted its potential for passage, especially considering that he described the House at this point as, quote, completely disorganized, having no man to lead them, and being split into 20 different opinions. The Senate, meanwhile, was not willing to let the House have all of the legislative fun. Senator John Quincy Adams, Federalist from Massachusetts, drafted two resolutions which were then offered up out of committee by Senator Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, along with a third resolution that Smith drafted. As described by Adams biographer Samuel Flagg Bemis, quote, The first resolution declared that the captures and condemnation of American vessels and their cargoes under the order of the British government were an unprovoked aggression upon the property of the citizens of these United States a wanton violation of their neutral rights, and a direct encroachment upon their national independence. The second requested the president to demand and insist upon restoration and indemnity. Both of these passed with little to no opposition, and Bemis called the Senate's approval of these two resolutions, quote, Adams's first triumph as a nonpartisan senator, as the senator from Massachusetts was increasingly out of line with his Federalist colleagues. The third resolution, which was an idea that Smith had proposed back during the debates on the Jay Treaty a decade prior, 
called for, quote, a ban on foreign ships landing any goods in the United States that were not of the growth or manufacture of the country to which the ships belonged. Vessels of nations that did not discriminate against the American re-export trade were to be exempt. In essence, Smith's Non-Importation Act would affect only one nation, Great Britain. Despite Smith's close ties to the administration, including the fact that his own brother was Jefferson's Secretary of the Navy, his overtures to get support from the administration for his bill were to no avail. Likewise, though in the House, Federalists thought that Gregg's resolution had its origin in the Jefferson administration, the President and his cabinet opposed Gregg's non-importation bill as well. Knowing that the administration was opposed to the Gregg Resolution did not stop John Randolph from using the opportunity of speaking against the bill to also lodge some attacks at Madison. Realizing that something had to be done, the administration turned to Randolph's friend and congressional ally, Representative Joseph Nicholson, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, who put forward a more moderate compromise bill on non-importation. Randolph, realizing that he could not muster enough opposition to the bill to defeat it in the House, instead, quote, absented himself from the decisive vote on that resolution. When the Nicholson resolution was sent to the Senate, Senator Smith voted in favor of the measure, though he felt, quote, that it had little more than symbolic value. In the final bill, as described by Smith biographer Frank Castle, quote, the law prohibited the importation of English silk, tin, leather, and a few other products that altogether constituted a small percentage of the goods normally bought from Britain. The Non-Importation Bill of 1806 was not set to go into effect for nine months, which would allow time for the news of the bill to go across the Atlantic and hopefully motivate the British government to come to a peaceful resolution on the matter. Ultimately, the congressional action on both the British and Spanish questions depended upon negotiations. So with some tools put into place to hopefully aid in the work, the question became just who would negotiate with these two foreign powers? Shortly after the passage of the $2 million Act, Jefferson submitted two names on February 28th to the Senate for confirmation as special commissioners to negotiate with Spain. The choice of James Baldwin, the U.S. minister to Spain, was reasonable enough and approved quickly. But the Senate got into an uproar about the nomination of U.S. minister to France, John Armstrong Jr., as the second commissioner. If you'll recall from last episode, dear listener, I mentioned that Armstrong had suffered from some bad press in the United States related to his ill-advised comments on a claims case being resolved in France involving American merchants. This came back to bite him in the confirmation process for the special commission with both Democratic Republicans and Federalists opposing Armstrong. Senator Samuel Smith led the fight, but Senator Adams also called his appointment, quote, one of the most disgraceful acts of Mr. Jefferson's administration. When the vote was taken in mid-March, the Senate was tied, 15 to 15. Thus, it fell to Armstrong's fellow New Yorker, Vice President George Clinton, to break the tie, and he broke it in favor of Armstrong. While the nominations for the commission to London were not quite so contentious, they would also pose a political problem for Jefferson and his administration. That winter, there had been rumors circulating around Washington that the president intended to appoint Senator Samuel Smith as a third commissioner to Spain, but of course, that nomination never materialized. Still, despite his opposition to Armstrong's nomination, Smith had reason to believe that he would be considered as a commissioner to Britain. 
Jefferson later asserted that his initial inclination was to leave full negotiating powers in the hands of U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe, but he was convinced by a committee of senators, which had included Senator Smith, that the Senate preferred for a commission to be named. Secretary Smith reported back to his brother about cabinet deliberations on the matter and Jefferson's noting that, quote, a practical merchant of talent must be named to the mission. Why? Senator Smith was a merchant and likely would have described himself as practical and as possessing of some talent. You can imagine Smith's surprise when the nominations finally arrived in the Senate and Monroe's intended fellow commissioner was revealed to be William Pinckney of Baltimore. For longtime listeners of the podcast, I feel that I should clarify something before continuing. This Pinckney's name is spelled P-I-N-K-N-E-Y, while the last name of the Pinckney family from South Carolina, which includes one-time presidential candidates Thomas and Charles Coatsworth and former U.S. Minister to Spain Charles, all of whom we've discussed in the past, is spelled P-I-N-C-K-N-E-Y. To date, I've found nothing to suggest that there's any family connection between William Pinckney of Maryland and the South Carolinian Pinckneys, but as we'll be talking about William Pinckney for a bit, and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney is going to come back into the narrative at some point, I thought I should clarify matters. With that said, let me introduce you to William Pinckney. Though we haven't had reason to this point to discuss Pinckney by name, he had actually been involved in U.S. foreign relations by this point in the narrative. The Jay Treaty had established a bilateral commission to evaluate and settle claims, and Pinckney was one of the two American commissioners. He worked on this commission in London for eight years, and thus was well acquainted with the movers and shakers in the British capital. Prior to his tenure in London, Pinckney had studied the law under Samuel Chase prior to Chase's joining the Supreme Court, and though he was associated with the Federalist Party, Pinckney, quote, was sought after by Republican and Federalists alike for his skills. The most vivid physical description that I found for Pinckney comes from Monroe biographer Tim McGrath, who describes the man from Baltimore as follows, quote, A brown-eyed, moon-faced man with a long nose above a small mouth and spit curls poorly camouflaging a high forehead. He was an unrepentant clothes horse and a snob. Now, as you can imagine, the fact that Jefferson would pass over his longtime Democratic-Republican ally, Senator Samuel Smith, for a fellow Marylander who is more closely associated with the Federalist, did not go down well with Smith. As noted by Castle, quote, By April of 1806, the long-standing friendship between Jefferson and Smith had ended. Driven apart by policy differences and political ambition, the two men no longer communicated with each other directly, preferring to use Wilson Carey Nicholas, Democratic-Republican senator from Virginia, as an intermediary. Pinckney would be confirmed, and we'll discuss his mission in future episodes. For now, though, we must stay with Congress in the spring of 1806, as this would not be the only dispute to occur amongst government officials at the time. If you can imagine a raucous meeting of the House Ways and Means Committee, go ahead and get that in your mind, because that's where the trouble started. Apparently, one of the committee members, Representative William Finley, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, had used a recess in the meeting to have dinner and, quote, imbibe spiritous liquors before the meeting resumed. Thus, he was feeling rather saucy and made a remark that the effort of the committee leadership, quote, to repeal the duty on salt was primarily motivated by a desire to embarrass the administration as the salt levy originally put in place to fund the Barbary War 
was now earmarked by the administration to fund the purchase of the Floridas, if such a deal could be reached. After another congressman, Representative David R. Williams, Democratic-Republican from South Carolina, defended the move, and other representatives, including the president's son-in-law, Representative Thomas Mann Randolph, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, tried to call Williams to order. The committee's chairman, John Randolph of Roanoke, stepped up to his own defense. However, as noted by Dumas Malone, quote, From the recorded words of this master of epithets, an artist in innuendo, it is difficult to determine just whom he was aiming at. Because of the vague nature of the address, Thomas Mann Randolph thought that his kinsman's words were aimed at him and took offense. Thus, Thomas started verbally insulting John, and there was no question about whom he was referring. When those in the meeting turned to see how John Randolph would respond, they instead found that he had left the room. Soon after, Representative James Garnett, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, came in and asked Thomas Randolph whether his remarks had been directed to John Randolph, to which Thomas responded in the affirmative. Garnett then told him, quote, that John Randolph would expect to meet him either that night, which he preferred, or in the morning. We've talked about affairs of honor in the past, most notably with the Burr-Hamilton duel back in episode 3.23. But this wasn't just a dispute between two congressmen, which, though remarkable, was not completely unheard of. This was an affair of honor involving the son-in-law of the president. The presidential ties deepened when Thomas Randolph chose as his second for the negotiations Isaac Coles, who was Jefferson's private secretary. As we saw with the Burr-Hamilton situation, the seconds were responsible for the negotiations to see if there was any way to clear up the dispute without a duel. And in this case, Garnet and Coles were able to clear up some of the misunderstanding. Ultimately, though, the dispute ended when Thomas Mann Randolph, realizing his rash error in thinking John Randolph's comments had been directed at him, made his way to the House floor, quote, and, speaking in tones so low as to be almost inaudible, acknowledged his error and apologized for his very severe and harsh language. As the congressional session ended, it seemed like the matter was firmly closed. However, the flames would be fanned again, this time by words in print. The Aurora printed a piece written by someone using a pseudonym which claimed that the whole affair of honor was in fact part of a plan by Thomas Mann Randolph, William Finley, and others to take down John Randolph of Roanoke. Then, a back and forth appeared in the pages of the Aurora and the National Intelligencer about which man had actually backed down in the matter. There, for all to see in print, was a question of honor between two very proud Randolph men. Friends of both began to worry that the dispute was about to flare up all over again, especially as Thomas Mann Randolph began to question whether he should take back his apology. Having seen the journalistic dispute for himself, on July 13th, President Jefferson stepped into the situation with a letter to his son-in-law. While asserting that, quote, Certainly, I would not wish you to do what might lessen you in the esteem of the world. Jefferson also reminded Randolph that, quote, How different is the stake which you too would bring into the field? On his, i.e. John Randolph's side, unentangled in the affections of the world, a single life of no value to himself or others. On yours, yourself, a wife, and a family of children, all depending for all their happiness and protection in this world on you alone. 
Ultimately, James Garnett wrote a letter printed in the Richmond Inquirer clarifying the details of the matter, and Thomas Mann Randolph wrote back to his father-in-law that he had no intention of doing anything rash. There the matter lay, but only time would tell if, on one front or many, the Jefferson administration would be faced with a full-on conflict, be it of a public nature or private. It is in this period of uncertainty, dear listener, that I must draw this episode to a close. Special thanks again to James for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out Key Battles of American History wherever you get your podcast. Special thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncote, for his efforts on this episode. I'd also like to thank the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of a clip from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty to serve as the intro and outro music for this episode. You can find links to Key Battles of American History and the Itinerant Band on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. The website is also where you can find information about past episodes of the podcast, sources used for this episode, and a wealth of other information about presidents from Washington to the present day. There's also information on the website about how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the podcast. Sharing information about presidencies and leaving a rating and review are quick ways that you can help the podcast. I'd also like to thank Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, Joshua, Michael, Scott, Kara, and Howard for being patrons of the podcast and helping to provide financial resources for me to continue this work. If you'd like to sign up as a patron, just go to patreon.com presidencies and sign up. If you'd like to reach me, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word. Last, but certainly not least, I thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, we'll discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.